So in September of 1969, the Beatles released a song titled, Here Comes the Sun. The song was written by one of the members named George Harrison. So prior to creating this song, George spent a year or so in kind of a, a tough place. He had spent time feeling like the rest of his band members just didn't value his contribution to the band. He felt that they would constantly just ignore his songs and uh, they wouldn't pick his songs to be on an album. Uh, he felt like they were not entertaining new lyric ideas that he would pitch. And so due to this disappointment and strife, he was feeling really, really down about it and he even left the band for a time. And if you've watched Peter Jackson's documentary, you've seen that play out. Uh, but at the end of this period of his life, he ended up crafting a beautiful song. In a BBC radio interview, he was asked about the creation of this song, Here Comes the Sun. And he said, I had stopped playing guitar for a while, and I felt like I was stuck in a long, cold, lonely England winter. But when I finally decided to pick up the guitar again, this was the first song that came out. And so George spoke more about how he wrote this song, and he said he wrote it in a response to his circumstances in his life. He wrote the song as a way of saying that hope was on the horizon. And he wrote lyrics like this, it's been a long and lonely winter, but it's all right, because here comes the sun. And he would go on to say that this time really shaped him, shaped his life, and it was kind of a, a game changer for him. And the sun would actually rise on George because this song went on to be ultra famous. You guys know it. Uh, one of the Beatles' most popular songs. It's great. So in the first chapter of Luke, we, we find a song composed as a response to a personal experience as well. But this time it's from Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Mary's song is traditionally referred to as the Magnificat. And this comes from the Latin translation of the, the verb to magnify that we see in the opening line. All right, so here's the roadmap. Here's where we're going. We're going to see that the theme here of Mary's song is focused on the favor of God. And there are two main aspects of Mary's interaction with that favor that are highlighted in this song. First, the response to God's favor. I'm putting in parentheses here, true worship. I think Mary teaches us through her response what true worship looks like. We also are going to see the reality of God's favor or the reason to worship. And my hope for us tonight is that by first focusing on Mary's response, we'll learn what true worship looks like and it'll help us know how to respond when we're confronted with the reality of God's favor in our own lives. So let's look at the first one. It's the response to God's favor. So to fully understand Mary's response, we've got to go back a little bit. We need some context. So we see in verses 26 through 38 that the angel Gabriel visits Mary and tells her about her role in the Messiah's birth. Gabriel says this, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Uh, Gabriel goes on to say that this Jesus will reign on a throne, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary's response is simple. I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you've said. Now we need to understand Mary's position and her feelings at this moment. Mary was probably thinking things of, like, definitely my life's going to be changed if this is real. Um, Probably thinking things like she could be accused of being unfaithful to Joseph, or even worse, that Joseph and Mary were unfaithful to God. Like these are all real worries. But we get a pivotal moment in the story in verses 39 through 45, where Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. 
Now, Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and the baby inside Elizabeth, upon Mary and Elizabeth meeting, is said to have leaped with inside of her. And this caused Elizabeth to exclaim, blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Are you seeing what's happening here? So Mary is witnessing Elizabeth's worship and witnessing the joy and reality of God's favor. And this encourages Mary to worship, right? Mary realizes God is going to keep his promise through her. So compare these two responses from Mary. We've got, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me. Then we have her pinning a song of worship and adoration to God's past, present, and future faithfulness. And now I'm not trying to downplay Mary's initial response. Definitely not. It's a beautiful act of faith to even accept something like this. That I mean, could you imagine an angel coming down and telling you something like that? Like the faith that it would take to even accept that. But we see something more in the Magnificat. So what does Mary's response teach us about how to worship? Well, I think it does three things. I think the first one is that it shows us that true worship is internal. So read with me in verse 46 and 47. It says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. We see Mary use these words, soul and spirit, and she does so very intentionally. These words are they're used a lot together in the Bible and in parallel, and they speak of the inner being or the inner self. So, for example, in Hebrews 4.12, we see the author of Hebrews saying, For the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So we see what this verse is saying here too, right? The word of God is penetrating to the inner self, the inner heart. It's the foundational level. It can't go any further. It's what makes up a human being. So what does this tell us about what Mary's doing here? Well, she's bursting forth in song about her personal experience with God's favor. And this worship, it's originating from within her, from like literally her guts, her inner heart. She's spilling forth. And so we see that true worship, it starts from within. And I don't think this should be too surprising to us. I really don't. I mean, we look at other places in the Bible, like John 4, 24, where it talks about worship. And it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is also conveying this idea of the inner being. So if you aren't worshiping God in spirit and in truth, you aren't a true worshiper. This is the exact reason that God says in Isaiah 29, the people, they honor me with their lips. Sounds good, right? (laughs) Like, yep, that's a good thing. But their hearts are far from me. We see that actions, external actions on their own, that's not worship. Singing lyrics to a worship song but harboring anger in your heart towards God, not worshiping. Raising your hands, but thinking about how your sports team lost the day before, not worshiping. (laughs) Giving to the church, but regretting that money has to leave your bank account, not worshiping. When we say all the time at Storyline, we just said it, that giving is an act of worship. And I think baked within that, we think, yes, but the inner heart gives cheerfully, and that's the act of worship. But with this truth does come some good news, okay? It's not all bad. (laughs) 
If worship is internal, this leaves us with some profound implications for how we live our lives. Guys, we can worship anywhere, all right? Isn't that incredible news? Like, we're not tied to some place. So no matter what part of space and time your body is taking up, your inner self, your soul, it's there with you. So you can worship. Look, I know we love to compartmentalize our lives, don't we? We we worship on Sundays only, then we live our life during the week, and then we wait and we come back and worship on Sunday again. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's that's not me. I do a little quiet time during the week, you know, like have some time set aside to, to worship in the mornings. And that's great. This is definitely great, but I think the truth in God's word is calling us to more than that. What if our lives were holistically marked by the worship of our creator? What would that look like? I think it would truly change how we view the world and view ourselves. We consider verses like, pray without ceasing, Paul says, and I think our initial reaction to that is like, seems impossible. But I think verses like that and the implications of internal worship are pointing us to the same thing, a life lived holistically in the worship of God. And how do you achieve that, you ask? Because you're definitely asking. Well, I don't know. (laughs) But I have some quick thoughts that I think are biblical. (laughs) Uh, So I think, one, we reorient our minds to where all things point us towards God. There's a saying in philosophy circles that all truth is God's truth. It's just conveying the idea that if God's the creator of all, then things like nature and truth and love and goodness all point us back to God. So we can see things in like God's characteristics displayed in other people. We can see kind acts done. And these things should point us to God. They should. We shouldn't treat these as something that's not spiritual and we do spiritual things some other time. All these things point us to worshiping God. We can also do micro prayers throughout the day. It's talking to God whenever you get a chance. It doesn't have to be a set aside time, although that's a great thing. You can hop in your car and head to work and think, thank God for transportation. (laughs) Simple, but it's beautiful. We can also read about the lives of saints who have gone before us. Pick up a biography. Read about others who have tried to live this holistic life of worship. Be inspired by them. And then the last thing I think is just a kind of a catch-all. I'm just gonna put it all under the umbrella of spiritual disciplines. These are great tools that God has gifted us with to Help us to become more like Christ. Things like praying, journaling, reading your Bible, meditating, all these types of things. These are just good tools to help us get that step further in living a holistic life of worship. And I'm going to move on because I could literally stay here all day and it'll be a two-hour sermon and we don't want that. So once your worship is internalized, then it should overflow into the rest of your being. So we see that true worship is a humble overflow so these verses again 46 and 47 my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior now to magnify simply means to make great to extol to lift up mary is literally saying like zoom in on god make him big the implication then is that to be true worshipers we must humble ourselves we must make less of ourselves and make more of god We do this by taking the focus off ourselves, zooming in on God, putting the focus on him. Bob Coughlin in his book, True Worshippers, says, to worship God is to humble everything about ourselves, 
and to exalt everything about him. It's to acknowledge that he alone is exalted over all peoples, all gods, and all heavens. It's to rejoice in the reality that he is exalted as head above all. And if, if this is true, and I think it is, this leads us to believe that pride is the enemy of worship. I think C.S. Lewis says this really well, and I mean, is it really a sermon without a good C.S. Lewis quote? <laughs> Didn't think so, that's why I have 12 of them in here, so buckle up. Uh, everybody's really worried now. So C.S. Lewis says this, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault in which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, they're mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. And get this, it's the complete anti-God state of mind. So if that's true, we must put off our pride and humble ourselves before the living God in order to worship him and experience this next word that Mary uses, which is rejoice. Now, we've heard this word a lot. It's in the Bible quite often, and I think we just tie it to joy and don't think anything else other than that, but it really means to be overjoyed. It's kind of a step further than joy. It describes a state of overflowing. We see uh, Peter use this in 1 Peter 1.8. He talks about it in the overflow of worship when he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible, glorious joy. This joy is overflowing. It's so big, there aren't even proper words to express how we feel about God. Second C.S. Lewis quote. <laughs> he describes this experience of joy really well, I think. He says, I stood beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day. There suddenly arose in me without warning, as if from a depth, not of years, but of centuries. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden comes somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? Before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again, and only stirred by a longing for that longing that I had just ceased. The quality in this experience is that of an unsatisfied desire, which it itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. Lewis would later realize that this longing, this desire, was a longing for God himself. And he experienced this joy after his salvation and he literally just spent the rest of his life working, uh, writing about that joy. I think the psalmist also hints at this one in Psalm 32, 11, says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright hearts. Question for you all. Do you experience this in worshiping God? Do you experience this overwhelming joy? 
When's the last time you've truly felt an overflow of joy when thinking about your salvation? When's the last time you've cracked open the Bible and experienced a glorious and inexpressible joy about something you've read there? Well, let me be clear. I'm not advocating for empty emotionalism. No, far, far from that. Remember, worship's rooted in spirit and in truth. But I do think that the beautiful truth rooted in God our Savior should stir something within us, right? It should move us to something. So we can begin to see how this works. Worship starts within your inner self and swells up to a humble overflow of joy and thanksgiving. We need to talk about what the object of Mary's worship is. So the third truth about worship we see is that true worship is directed towards God. Same verses, one last time. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. See, Mary recognizes her personal need for a Savior here. She says, my Savior. And just as a quick aside, this bit in Mary's song, I feel like easily goes overlooked. Many people throughout the history of church of the church have tried to argue that Mary wasn't born into sin or that she didn't need a savior, that God gave her a special sinless position. But Mary is saying otherwise. She's literally saying and marking herself as one who needs redemption. Mary identifies this savior as God and she's offering worship to him. And here's what we can learn from Mary's words. Worship is reserved for one being in the universe. Well, we see this in the first of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me, God says. And Mary is demonstrating that the focus of her worship is correctly picked out when she says, Lord and God. So a word of warning. Be careful not to worship the favor of God itself, but God himself, okay? Careful not to worship the favor of God, but God himself. See, Mary doesn't say, my soul magnifies the stuff God did for me or magnifies that favor on my life. No, she says it magnifies God. We can easily turn the worship of God's, we can turn worship into worshiping God's gifts and forget to worship the gift giver. Remember, all things that are good come from the Father of lights. That's what James tells us. And this is who we worship, the Father of lights. So, humble, overflowing joy, stemming from the inner self and directed in worship towards God is how we see Mary respond to God's favor in her life. So let's now turn to that reality of God's favor or the reason that Mary worships. So first, God's favor to Mary. In verse 48 and 49, it reads, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. So we see this word because here and we know that Mary's about to give us a foundation for why she worships and quick side story. A lot of other translations, most translations have the word for here instead of because. So like for he has looked upon me. And I'm from East Tennessee and uh, was at a church there in Knoxville and the pastor at that church had a lot of like quirky sayings, you know, like funny, like memorable sayings. And there was one he had about this word for that just made me roll my eyes so much. He was 
And I remember country accent and all, you know, he's like, when you come across a four, you say, what's it there for? <laughs> and I would like roll my eyes and think it's so cheesy, but wouldn't you know it? It's been so helpful to me. Dang it. <laughs> like really, like every time I come across this word, I'm now like, oh yeah, she's about to give like a foundation so I can connect the verses and it's helping me understand. Like it's been huge. So Rocky Ramsey, Pastor Rocky Ramsey, you're the real winner and I'm sorry for my eye rolls. All right. <laughs> So we see Mary worships God because he has looked with favor upon her humble condition. We see this humility from Mary. She didn't assume or expect to be the object of God's favor. No, she recognized her low status. She recognized she wasn't worthy of God's grace. She could have thought, well, of course he chose me. Look at me. But now she says, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me. And this is not praising, this is not Mary praising the fact that all people will remember her. No, she's, she's saying all people will remember God for what he did for me. Generations won't boast in Mary, but they'll boast in God through Mary. And so she worshiped for the great things that God has done for her. Now don't miss this. Redemption is the central focus of these great things that God has done. See, Mary has come to really understand the fact that God was sending the Savior of the world through her. Think back to her encounter with Elizabeth. She said, or Elizabeth said, the mother of my Lord. Elizabeth was even catching on using this language, my Lord, uh, symbolizing a Savior. So Mary's worshiping not only because that she would bear the Savior who would come into the world and die for the sins of the world, but because this would be her personal Savior too. She says, God, my Savior. Mary cannot believe it. She is just amazed. And church, I think when we begin to realize God's favor in redeeming us, that's when we truly begin to worship. Some of us, we have trouble accepting that. We have trouble accepting that God loves us, even as Christians. We live in constant shame about our sin. We can't fathom how a holy, righteous God could actually love us. But you cannot worship from this place. If that's you, I'm pleading you to be like Mary and accept God's favor in your life. Accept that God has redeemed you from these sins that are causing you shame. He's declared you righteous in his sight. And if you do this, you will find freedom in worship. You will. So Mary worships because of the reality of God's favor in her own life, but also the reality of God's favor for those in the future. In verse 50, it says, his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. Mary worships because of what God will do for others in the future. And she's quoting a promise like this that's been found in the Old Testament constantly. Psalm 100, verse five, for example, for the Lord is good, and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. Now think back to our Genesis series here at Storyline. God promised to be faithful to Abraham's descendants. He made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham relied on this promise. The Israelites then relied on this promise. And now Mary is rely, relying on the same promise. Since she believes these promises that God's love endures forever, she can worship God for all of those who will be recipients of his favor in the future. Now, here's the, here's the cool thing about this. This is us. 
right? We're evidence of this. In a way, Mary's trust in God's faithfulness is shown to not be in vain by the fact that we're gathered in this room. We are the generations that look at what God did for Mary and we see the beauty in God's plan that he put into motion to rescue us. Mary says that generations will call her blessed and we respond and say, yes, Mary. We see how God has blessed you and we see how God simultaneously blessed us. We can say with her, look at God. Look at how wonderful he is. That he did this and what he did for the world. He is faithful to generations. We worship this God who is faithful. So Mary worships God for his favor on her life, for his promises to future generations. And lastly, Mary worships God because of favor, his favor in the past. Now, verses 51 through 55, I'm not going to read them all because they're a little bit, it's a little bit long, but I just want to bullet point the things that lists ways that God has shown favor in the past. He has done mighty deeds. He has scattered the proud. He's toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He's satisfied the hungry and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants. So Mary's worshiping here because of what God has already done. What a beautiful reason to worship God, right? Don't you love this? We love worshiping God, I think, for what he's done in other people's lives. It's easy to see. It's clear evidence. This is why we're so hyped for baptism services here at Storyline, right? I mean, we get up and cheer and clap and celebrate for those who are publicly professing a faith in Christ. It's all as an act of worship to God. Here's the cool thing. God's acts in the past, they never leave us. See, here's the glorious and mind-blowing thing about how time works and how God created time. We can't see the future, right? And we can currently struggle with where we're at and our place in the present. We always have access to the past. We have access to God's acts of mercy that are recorded in the Bible. We have that available to us at all times. We have memories of the way that God has acted in our own lives. We have friends and family that can remind us or tell us stories about the way that God has shown them grace in their lives. So in this way, we're never closed off to the mighty deeds of our God. And look, there's definitely going to be times where it's hard to see God's favor in our own lives at the present moment. And it can be hard to imagine what God could do in the future. But you can always look back. I can personally say that Cody and I have to practice this often. When difficult moments in our life arise where there's anxiousness or uncertainty about a decision, we look backwards. We look back and see how God has been with us every step of the way so far. The most recent example I can think of is when we bought a house here in St. Louis. It was in a time of transition where we didn't know if we were going to plant roots here or uh, go somewhere else or what it was going to look like. And it was really hard to see God with us in that decision. So much uncertainty. But what we did was we looked back and said, well, he was with us in the move from Knoxville to Louisville, wasn't he? We were nervous about that, and he was faithful. Or how about when we moved from Louisville to St. Louis and right in the midst of COVID and couldn't find any friends and it was a rough time. Well, he was with us, wasn't he? Like, can look back on those things. He, he was with us. So why would he not be with us when we make a house purchase? Right? It can kind of make those moments seem silly that you don't have faith in God. Because you look back and say, no, nah, he was there. He was faithful the whole time. 
So if you're ever stuck and you cannot sense God's favor in your life, just look at God's gracious acts in the past. And it would be careless of me if I didn't point you to the greatest act of all possible acts that God can, that has done and you can always run back to, and that's the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. See, we were in the same boat as Mary. We were undeserving of God's favor. Because of our sin, we were spiritually lowly. We were unable to save ourselves, unable to pick ourselves up and save ourselves from the just wrath of the mighty God. But also, like Mary, we were granted God's unmerited favor and grace because of the Jesus that she was bearing would also be the catalyst for our sin and our salvation. See, this Jesus, he would go on to accomplish all the things that we couldn't do on our own. He would live a perfect and sinless life. He would die on a cross for the sins of his people. He'd be resurrected as a bold statement that he is God. And all who confess the name of this Jesus will have access to God's favor. Oh, what a gift. What a joy. That our God would take on flesh, enter in his, in his creation, pull us out of the mire and set us free. All grace and all for his glory. So, unbeliever, look back at this act and believe. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's powerful enough to save you from your sins. And believer, also look back and look back often. Take rest in this powerful act that Jesus performed on your behalf. Let go of that shame, that uncertainty, and rest in freedom. And so to put all of this together that we've seen from Mary's song, to truly worship God is to respond in a humble, joyful overflow to the reality of his favor in our lives and other lives, others' lives and throughout all time. And so just two quick points of how we can take this and apply it to our lives. First one is just practice it. Practice an awareness of the reality of God's favor in your own life. And you do have to practice it. You have to put in the work. In an age of distraction, and uh, awareness is something that has to be sought after. It's not something that's going to come to you passively. When it's a lot easier to pick up your phone or watch TV, be distracted, we must fight against this and become aware. Don't get lost in the fog of preoccupation and disorder. Instead, know your place in time and see God's favor in your life. And once we've done this, you then respond in worship. Once you're aware of God's favor in your life, you worship him for it, especially during Advent. Look, we, this is an intentional time set aside in the church calendar for worship. Look, and if you're a Christian, God's shown you favor. He has. He's shown you favor in Christ. So will we be like Mary and burst forth in praise and adoration for this God who sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior? My hope is that the posture of your hearts over the next few Sundays will be worship because you've been reminded of Christ's interest, entrance into this world, you've been reminded of his death and resurrection, and you've been reminded that he's coming again. And look, it can be hard. I mean, even during this season, especially during this season, our attention, our attention can go to thoughts about presents, gifts, traditions, carols, all these things, and these are all great gifts from God and should actually direct us towards him, but they fight for our attention because we're broken people. But what if, what if, 
this Christmas, this Advent, our first thought was about Jesus. Jesus was the object of our worship. He's the one deserving of our worship. We know this. Who wants to be that church? Let's do it. Let's pray.